Hello everyone, and welcome to my final episode of No Place Like Home. For the past month, I've mostly talked about homelessness from a historical perspective, looking at factors of oppression like homophobia and transphobia, as well as racism and colonialism. I've also looked at personal factors like mental health and resiliency, and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'm talking about the future and where we need to go next to look at ending and preventing homelessness. This project all started when Dr. Margot Watt, a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology here at St. Francis Xavier University, introduced me to Laura McKay. Laura graduated from Mount St. Vincent University with a bachelor's in psychology, and she completed her BSW at Dalhousie University before working as a clinical social worker at Nova Institution for Women. But she's hopped ship and is now the executive director of Welcome Housing and Support Services. But what is Welcome Housing and Support Services? What do they do? So we, I always describe it the same way. Like I always say we do a million and one things, but we have three main departments. The first one is our housing support team. So that is a group of four housing support workers and one team lead who um, navigate homelessness in the city. So they have a, a very high caseload and a very long wait list of folks who are either living rough on the streets um, or in various precarious, like really unsafe, precarious housing situations. So that can include anything from having an eviction notice um, to living in you know, an apartment that is full of bed bugs or cockroaches or other unpleasant things. Um, and based on the housing crisis, you know, typically we would we would be we would support people who really just wanted to move and didn't necessarily have the capacity to do the searching themselves. But based on uh, the current state of affairs in Nova Scotia, and particularly HRM, uh, we've limited our caseload. So they really just focus on the most vulnerable people. Uh, and then moving on to our tenant support team. So Welcome Housing, we own um, six buildings, uh, two in North Dartmouth and four in North Halifax. And we house just under 80, uh, 80 people. And we provide deeply affordable housing. So what that looks like is below market rent. Um, we have two buildings uh, where we provide rent geared to income. So they, you know, we have people over there who are paying as little as $118 a month who are on social assistance, and that's pretty much unheard of at this point. And then uh, we offer our market rents for a bachelor and one bedroom are severely below market. So we're talking around $600 a month. Um, and then the third program is our trustee program. So Healy, our trustee officer, and Robin, our ICM, uh, they, they serve over 220 people in Halifax Regional Municipality um, by paying their rent, managing their money. Um, and essentially what that really looks like is keeping people housed and in safe living conditions. Um, a lot of these people don't have the financial literacy or even just the, the general capacity to manage their own funds. So um, they, they likely would have been evicted for not paying rent or a variety of other reasons. So um, those are the main the main things that we do. Um, but like I mentioned, we also operate food banks. Um, we do street navigation. We do a lot of support work with our tenants. Um, so we have a pretty large footprint um, in, the, in the vulnerable people in 
Halifax, um, not only through our housing department, but just, you know, they're going to stop in for water, they're going to stop in for coffee. So we have two offices, one is in uh, North Halifax and the other is in North Dartmouth. So we try to be as um, accessible to, to people as possible. So what is Welcome Housing and Support Services' goal? Our, our goal is to uh, provide, develop, and advocate for affordable housing in HRM. Looking around even the north end of Halifax as I sit here, um, I'm, I'm looking at people who couldn't typically afford what Halifax's decided market rent is. Um, right now, a, a one-bedroom apartment the average um, affordability would be, well, not even affordable. What, what people are charging for a one-bedroom apartment is around $1,150 a month, and that doesn't include all utilities. Um, hell, well, Nova Scotia has the highest rate of folks who are on income assistance in the country. Um, and what I know, what I notice and what people in positions far higher than me notice is that it's no, there's no the gap is too big. So most people cannot afford those six apartments and Nova Scotia, in particular with Halifax Regional Municipality, doesn't have enough vacant units. So that's driving our homeless population up. It's causing a number of other issues, um, health and safety issues, safety issues. So um, we really try to carve out apartments for people that are actually affordable. Um, when we talk about affordable housing, people get confused. They say, what does that mean? What does affordable housing mean? And what that means for people on income assistance is like $500 a month. That's what they can afford. So that's what we, that's what we do with our units. We, we take massive subsidies from the province so that we can afford to actually operate these buildings. Um, and so, yeah, why is it important? Because the need is there. And, it, you know, unfortunately with government, they have all the ideas, but they don't have the, the actual resources to make these things happen. So that's where that's where small not-for-profits like us come in. It sounds like some very important steps are already being taken, but I wanted to know what other steps are needed for a not-for-profit like Welcome Housing to keep providing the support that they do. Um, well, we saw under Rankin, we saw that we did increase social assistance by $100 a month. That was a step. That was something we needed to increase more. We needed to increase significantly more. Um, that's one thing that needs to change. Um, the other thing that needs to change is the government's um, method, I guess, or process in which to sustain affordable housing. So, for example, funding. You know, small organizations like ours need sustained um, funding so that we know we can operate on a long-term basis. That's when things get a little bit scary. And I mean, I'm not the only one. There's tons of not-for-profits that are, you know, we're all competing with one another essentially um, to get government funding. And that's not helpful. Um, it's not helpful for us, staff, and most importantly, the clients that we serve. So sustainable funding opportunities, income assistance rate needs to go up. Uh, we need lots of land to build more affordable housing. And we need a lot of government support to do that. Um, we also need um, from municipality and city council to recognize, and I think to a certain part they do, but to recognize and really commit to a homelessness strategy in the city. And yes, one big part of that is affordable housing. And the other part is how do you treat people who, who are your unhoused neighbors? And I think um, 
despite lots of checks and balances that are in place, um, clearly, clearly something went wrong last week and that, that, that worries me that something like that's going to happen again. So we need a lot of awareness um, in police, in government, in, in city council. The event to which Laura was referring to, I covered in my last episode. Our interview took place about one week after the protests happened in Halifax Regional Municipality. You know, for example, when rent control ends, and it, it very much looks like it's going to, the eviction rates are going to be astronomical. Um, landlords will uh, and will have the freedom to raise their rent to whatever capacity they want, and that will contribute in a very large way to the over 400 people who are already homeless in the city. After my interview with Alexa, as you heard in the last episode, I was wondering how COVID might have impacted welcome housing and their ability to provide support. Well, we've tried really hard um, to use creativity and flexibility so that our services don't get altered too, too much. Now, when I look back to the first wave of the pandemic, um, we, along with everybody else, we were shut down. Um, so our doors remain locked even now. Um, but we are in office every day, and we've always been in office every single day, um, by appointment only, using masks, social distancing, um, trying to be as careful as possible. Um, what, where we really took the hit was community outreach. So our housing support team, the work that they do is not in office. It's, it's walking around, it's talking to people, it's liaising with other organizations, um, and really just being out there and visible and we couldn't do that we couldn't offer that service now we're, we're starting that back up again um, the trustee the trustee program was intact um, the tenant program was partially intact we did have people working from home of course but the housing support department for two reasons a the pandemic and and just the guidelines around um, social gathering limits and all that that jazz um, combined with the fact that the pandemic highlighted the deficits of the of the affordable housing strategy and health or lack of lack of one in the city so you know you've got you've got housing support workers who are used to housing people who no longer can do that so um, it was kind of a twofold um, kind of depression there when I asked Laura about some of the challenges of her new position her answer shocked me on a personal note for me, the recognition that, you know, coming out of a big correctional system and, you know, it's, it's a lot harder for folks in community that is, you know, um, in prison. I know that sounds like an outrageous thing to say, but it's true. You know, you have, you have people who at least have food, at least have running water, at least have shelter when they're incarcerated. Now there's other barriers that come along with that, of course. Um, but in community, it's the same profile of, of people that have far less resources and their safety is far more at risk. So that kind of really stark realization kind of hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. Of course, like my other interviewees, I had to ask Laura what the word home meant to her. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It should be an easy answer. Um, what I've learned is that what home means to me um, isn't what home means to the people that we serve. So home means to me comfort and family and safety and cozy and all like, I mean, I, 
I own my privilege. That's one of the biggest, like, I will own my privilege. That's what it means to me. I'm very, very, very fortunate. And so are most of the staff. What home means to the folks that we work with most of the time is a physical structure where they can be safe. It doesn't need to be cozy. It doesn't even need to be warm. It just needs to be like out of the elements and away from threats. So I really had to break that down for myself. And I think it's, it's something that I've, I've had those conversations with my friends and my family around like, yeah, we, we're really lucky. We can, we can talk about Thanksgiving and we can talk about getting together and having wine on the weekends. These folks just literally will live in a wooden box and be better off than they would be in a tent. And it's almost like that's the, that's their baseline. Thankfully, there are other concerned folk based out of Halifax right now who also want to make housing more accessible and affordable. Journalist and web developer Lorax Horn also sat down with me to talk about their project that they've recently co-founded. Yeah, I co-founded uh, thisshouldbehousing.com recently, among other things <laughs> involving data and journalism that I do. And this is sort of a project to collect um, and build a data set from scratch, but with sort of crowd input. And I was, I guess, inspired by going to a Halifax mutual aid event where they were protesting against the city's eviction of some of the crisis shelters that they had built. And I have nothing to do. I mean, I've never been involved with Halifax mutual aid. I, generally support their goals and um, and they had these stickers at the rally that they held when the city demolished some of their shelters and the stickers were sort of self-explanatory they said this should be housing and it was the orange um, color that that mutual aid has been using for most of their stuff and I was like oh this is very cute and like two-dimensional and practical, but um, I was like wanting something that would do it faster and where I could um, collect other people's ideas of what should be housing. And so the idea for making this crowdsourced map and database was born. I asked Lorax to describe the website a little bit and about what its purpose is. Well, right now, um, where we have a form that people access from thisshouldbehousing.com, which is um, centered on Nova Scotia and uh, people are invited to place a pin and it sort of opens up a second map view where they can scroll around and drop a specific dot on the map of a building that is vacant or a piece of land that is misused and could be housing or has been proposed as housing. Um, different points on the map have different histories. So there's sort of a general like comment box where you can fill in like if you know more about that piece of land than, than what is reflected in just like the general data <clears throat> about it being vacant or about it being owned by, by which 
level of government or by private entities or by um, an, an unknown. So that's sort of like, those are the general data questions that are proposed by this form. And then people have been adding dots. I added some at the start to, to give folks an idea of um, what parts of the city I, I had in mind, at least when, when I thought of this map. And some of the first plots of land that I had on the map were things like the Bloomfield Center on Agricola Street and um, Shannon Park, uh, which is former military housing. And uh, then there's the Penhorn Mall, which is a giant plot of land in Dartmouth uh, that has been proposed as a new neighborhood, sort of. But uh, it's questionable how many of these new houses that are being created by the market will be able to be afforded by the people who live here. This was what Lorax had to say when asked about what everyone else needs to be doing right now to help. Paying attention to where you are and around and what is around you and being critical and imaginative about what could be housing and what um, what we can maybe put on the map in terms of making it housing. Yeah. Lorax would love to have more data for the map, so please be sure to check out their website, which I've linked in the show description. If you know of empty plots, or if you just have some more ideas, they encourage listeners to reach out. The last interview you'll be hearing from me was with Art Fisher. Art grew up just south of Truro, in a time where they described to me a world of greater biodiversity and light. Think beautiful smells and sounds of nature. Art told me that this, among other things, guides their work. So I asked Art to describe to listeners a little bit about their work and the organization in which they're a part of. Yeah, uh, so um, so I'm the executive director of Family Service Association of Western Nova Scotia. And um, this organization started in the 80s. Uh, so it has a long, long grassroots history. Um, and the, uh, the impetus for the organization was the community grassroots uh, responses in the 1980s. Um, to um, uh, men's violence against women, gender-based violence. Um, and the local Billy Stafford case was a case that was a, an incredible impetus uh, for moving forward with um, gender-based violence response. And, um, and then how, how to learn to do that work in a way that, that actually genuinely reduces uh, risk uh, to everybody involved um, and, uh, and how to do that work in a way that is um, preventive and involves early intervention and is not merely crisis response. Um, and how to link crisis response with prevention. All, all of those are uh, practices that we've continually learned about and have continued to push the envelope around. And, um, and um, part of pushing that envelope uh, around linking intervention with prevention uh, and in early intervention and also linking all of that with a recognition that for every person we serve an understanding of um, their, their, 
their needs and their rights violations across the social determinants of health is extremely important. Um, so um, by 2014, we became uh, Family Service uh, Association of Western Nova Scotia. We evolved from an earlier organization called Alternatives. And we engaged in that evolution because we wanted to ground this work uh, within the most um, social determinants of health comprehensive framework we could. So yeah, so I came into that work as a, as a, an earlier in my life, I had developed into uh, a somewhat small scale gay activist. And um, uh, I was incredibly, uh, incredibly fascinated and interested in, in, in what all of this work is like in rural, because I grew up in rural. And um, I think rural is, is largely vastly neglected in terms of services and supports. And we, we continually, I think, neglect really pivotal issue of the fact that you know so much of urban homelessness um, is completely linked with rural homelessness and patterns of, of migration and enforced migration uh, from rural areas to urban areas that have more services and supports. I asked Art what inspires them in the work that they do. Well part of our part of our, our goal is to make sure that we're we're not simply we're not simply fulfilling a colonial role around uh, changing individuals. Um, so much of the work historically for me, I mean, very conscious of working in a in a context where so much of the historic focus has been on uh, supporting individuals with change, personal change. It's, it's not like that isn't, of course, a very important part of what happens in our lives, but. What's often been profoundly neglected in this work is how important it is to uh, link supports with personal change, uh, with support for community change, and for system change. Um, so, um, because so many of the people we support, uh, our, 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 our mission is really focused on uh, marginalized populations. And uh, so many of the people we support often have inc incredibly painful uh, histories and present day experiences of systemic um, violence um, and, um, and then trauma responses to that violence, often ongoing. Um, and uh, so, much of our, uh, um, so much of our social services and health system uh, um, won't touch systemic issues or doesn't know how to. And um, and uh, keeps coming back to um, inv individual change, more mindfulness, more resilience. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, develop the inner skills to mine your inner resources and improve your life. Um, and so, um, while while rendering invisible that uh, we live within a capitalist system that uh, relies on poverty for the achievement of wealth. So our, our work is um, our work is uh, critically tying together those uh, three levels of social action. We've touched on the different challenges that rural homelessness poses compared to urban homelessness several times throughout this series. Art went into a little bit more detail about what that might look like. You know, we, we support sometimes youth who have 
who haven't been out of rural environments very much, if at all. So anyway, in, in, you know, in, in cases, then we started to experience that the only place for that youth to go to for support was urban, um, because all of our supports here were rejecting the youth. The youth had no money to live and would have no support in terms of short-term uh, housing. And, um, and so um, um, then um, uh, what we saw was that then um, uh, a rural youth could end up in the city and be at much greater risk of substance use, much greater risk of violence, much greater risk of sexual violence, and much greater risk of human trafficking. And, um, and there were situations where we had to use Operation Come Home, which is based on Ottawa, to help um, uh, bring, back, bring back a youth who had been trafficked and, and actually had no idea where they had ended up. And, uh, and the only way we were able to do that was because we always made sure that when we connected with the youth, that we provided them with a cell phone and we provided them with a month of minutes because we didn't know where they'd end up. And, um, and I'm realizing now how much, how much trauma those, um, those work experiences caused for us as workers. Um, and those experiences were a huge impetus for us to develop a housing support program, um, connect with uh, federal funding around providing that locally, and then also to look at how we could build supportive housing. Um, because um, um, we, we, um, we, we seem to think that um, shelter is enough. We forget that shelter is not housing. And, uh, and we often forget that shelter is as violating for people um, as, as anything else. And, um, and so, um, so we, were, we were very keen to, um, to um, look at how we could uh, eventually support what will hopefully become a, a, a right to housing in Canada. And that's a right I think we can all agree everyone deserves. And, and also when, when, when we profile people and we think they're not putting in sufficient work, they're being lazy. When we profile them, we have no idea who they are. We have no idea what they've been responding to in their life. We have no idea what, we, what they know. We have no idea about what their values are. I asked Art what they wished more people knew about homelessness. Uh, I, wish I, I wish people knew a lot. I wish people knew that the people that they judge uh, who are homeless are actually um, often um, incredibly amazing human beings with hearts and dreams and losses and grief. And they're, they're just like you. So I asked Art as my final interviewee what the word home meant to them. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a powerful word. And I, I, I love that you're raising this question. Um, years ago, I was at a conference in the US and a uh, African-American activist named Kenneth Hardy talked about um, um, African-American men and an experience of psychological homelessness. And um, that really resonated for me. I think many of us are psychologically homeless and um, and so I I think um, I think the when we talk about being unhoused and when we talk about a right to housing, I think we should also be profoundly reminding ourselves it's a right to home. And I think what home means to me is ultimately 
some form of belonging, some form of believing that you matter and other people believing that you matter. I don't know if I'd define home the same way now as I did when I first started this podcast. I think there are a lot of issues that I don't look at the same way as I used to. I believe that critically examining what the word home means to us requires us to critically consider our own personal values, to examine our need to reach out into the world and have someone reach back. It means connection, it means love, it means family and friends, it means safety and acceptance, it means whatever you need it to mean. And that's why I believe that there's no place like home. And there's also no one right way to define home either. To summarize, I heard what the word home meant from mental health researchers Dr. Anna Durbin and Miss Marichelle Leclerc. I then spoke with doctors John Ecker and Stephen Barrow about 2S LGBTQ plus homelessness and the idea of chosen family. Indigenous people, like members of the 2S LGBTQ plus community, are also disproportionately affected by homelessness. So I spoke with Dr. Raven Sinclair about that and how colonialism has redefined home for many. Last week, you heard from registered nurse Alexa Davis and two protest attendees, Jacob and Samson, who all had their own ideas of what the word meant to. And now, today, you've heard from executive directors Laura McKay and Art Fisher and co-founder of This Should Be Housing, Lorax Horn as they defined home and as they've tried to make it available for others. There were so many more people I wished that I could have interviewed and so many more research that I wished I could have examined. But while this may be the end of this podcast series, it's not the end of my work on homelessness. You can find out about upcoming events, information, and how to get involved on my Instagram at noplacelikehomepodcastcfxu. And this has been no place like home. This podcast has been produced by CFXU and has generously been funded by the Frank McKenna Center for Leadership, Taking It Global, the Canada Service Corps, and the Government of Canada. 